0: I'm excited. We get to finish part two of that last sermon that I preached. Uh, I'm sorry about the circumstances. You can pray for Pastor Thomas. He's under the weather. And it and, uh, seems like just having gone through the family battle with COVID, now him being sick too is, um, I'm sure, weighing on him. So uh, if you could be in prayer for him, that would be great. I thought... By way of review, uh, we would we would go through what we talked about last time because I'm 99.9% sure that most of you don't remember a word I said. Uh, so, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. And uh, we covered verses one through four last time we talked. Um, this time we'll be in verse five. But I wanted to do a review of what we talked about last time since there has been a bit of time that has transpired since then. So uh, we're going to take a read through here and then we'll, we'll talk through this passage. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy and he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now there are some very basic fundamental priorities that we should maintain as believers. And uh, we talked about that last time. Uh, Lest we become uh, caught up in the latest... uh, Morass of false teaching and and debris that floats around on the churning sea of the latest fads in ministry. Uh, we want to we want to practice some fundamental priorities. And so, in this uh, in this passage, what we see here are two really two fundamental duties that we need to commit ourselves to. Uh, so that we will be a success in God's eyes. This this culture is is sort of fascinated with the idea of being successful, being our own best self, being our the best that we can be. Right? Even the church has adopted your best life now. But there's really here in Paul's charge to Timothy. Uh, two fundamental duties that one must apply themselves to in order to be considered a success in God's eyes. Which is really the most important one we want to please, right? We don't want to please ourselves. We want to please God. And so, just by way of review, as I told you, this is, I mean, Paul wrote 23 letters of the New Testament. This is his last letter. This is the last chapter And these are his parting instructions to his disciple in the faith, Timothy. It's just a few years uh, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so history is about to change significantly. The gospel is going to go from the Jews uh, to the point where the Christians are going to come under persecution and the gospel is going to slowly migrate to the Gentiles. Uh, the early church, uh, we kind of see this shift that the, the gospel kind of it's almost like pouring water on a grease fire. If I could use that illustration, when you throw the water, it kind of spreads the fire everywhere under the persecution of the early church. The um, uh, from the Romans, the, the church sort of grew like wildfire across the empire. Uh, and, and the reason why was because of men like the Apostle Paul. Uh, He had been in ministry now at this point for 33 years. This is the end of his ministry. This is his swan song, and this is his his parting shot, if you will. Um, Almost his last will and testament to his disciple in the faith, Timothy. And uh, we know this is serious business because there are nine commands in a series of just a couple of verses. Nine imperatives telling him do this, do this, do this. This is this is it. So the first fundamental duty uh, we see that that uh, we saw last week actually was that we are to preach the word of God. Verse two. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season was the uh, duty number one. Don't forget to preach the word. Um, and we said last time that this, this verb basically means to herald or to proclaim the Word of God. And uh, in, in this case, it may or may not be talking about formal preaching. Um, and, but it, by implication, by application, by extension, this is, this is a responsibility for all believers. That we are to proclaim the Word of God to the culture in which we find ourselves. I think I'm going to have to go without my glasses. I got some new glasses and I got to tell you, I'm having a hard time. They're like, um, they focus at different lengths. And so I have to kind of like zero in on the target. So, uh, so let me ask you a question. How does, how do we come to faith? Faith comes by what? Hearing, hearing and hearing by what? Okay, so it should stand uh, to reason that we have to preach the word of God, right? If we want others to come to faith, we have to proclaim the word of God. It is the God ordained means. God ordained means of of saving the souls of men and women. It is how you came to faith. And so the reality, we said last time, is that our opinions matter little. And we have a lot of them, but they don't matter much. Uh, We have nothing really to say to people which is of any eternal value other than the Gospel. And yet, that's the hardest thing for us to speak to people. It should be the easiest, but it's the hardest. And don't delude yourselves into believing that you can just live a good life before somebody and they'll come to faith for that from that. That's a that's a weak excuse for not sharing the gospel. You just acknowledged with me that faith comes how? By hearing, not by seeing the gospel lived out in your life. That is a I think a just a wrong strategy that leads to nobody coming to faith. You have to speak. You have to get around to it. That is the God-ordained means of saving souls is when we preach the gospel. So we asked and answered three questions about preaching, proclaiming the word of God. We, we asked and answered the when, how, and why because that's what's in the text. So when do we preach the Word of God? Uh, we saw that in verse 2. In season and out of season, right? Uh, this is a play on words. Eukairos, uh, akairos. It, it means uh, good times and bad times. Uh, literally, in season and out of season. Uh, when it's good and when it's not good really all the time there, there really is no in-between is there times are either good or times are bad it's convenient or it's not but whether you feel like it or not you're supposed to preach the gospel at every opportunity you get and i'm sure if you're anything like me opportunities come all day long and you skip them you pass them by you don't open your mouth And the play on words comes in verse three, for there's coming a season, a kairos, a time when sound teaching, literally not, they will endure. Uh, There's coming a time when you and I, I think, have found ourselves in that time, honestly, uh, when people will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear it. In fact, doctrine is now considered a four letter word. If you bring up the subject of doctrine, people will shut you down in a matter of seconds. Unless they're up for a good argument. And I don't like to argue. I don't know about you, but I hate arguing with people. So I'd rather just stay silent. But in doing so, what am I doing? I'm disobeying the word of God. And I'm not fulfilling the God-ordained means as to why He has saved me. Why have you been saved? Ask yourself that question sometime. Why out of the whole of humanity did God choose to save me? Well, He left you here for a reason. And that reason is to be the God-ordained means of saving others for His glory and His purpose. So when do you preach, proclaim the Word of God? All the time. When you feel like it, when you don't. When it's fashionable, when it's not. And we can't allow ourselves to be discouraged or defeated uh, by the results. The results are not up to us. Faithfulness is not measured by the results. Faithfulness is measured by doing it. how do you preach the Word of God? Well, he he gives Timothy the instructions right here. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort, right? There's different ways. You don't have to have, you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like nails, right? And so, you don't have to be a hammer with everybody. I think that's the point he's making here. He says, you can... You can challenge people, you can reprove them, you can correct them, you can, you can rebuke them, you can exhort them. There's lots of ways to handle people. Sometimes they need an exhortation. Sometimes they need a rebuke. There's a lot of different ways to handle people, to handle the Word of God. But he says to do so with patience. The word here is makrothumia. It means long-suffering. Long-suffering. Be long-suffering with people. Be patient with them. Not everybody is in the same place you are. It literally says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Patiently and teachingly. Explaining things to people. Helping them to understand the truth in Scripture. Bringing them along. Like children it's important to understand that the scriptures second uh, Timothy 3:16 I mean the scriptures are adequate they're inspired by God and they're adequate for us too right that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good deed. they're for us. we need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves daily as well. We need the good news. Daily, uh, we're not going to be great witnesses in the culture if we're not walking with the Lord ourselves, right? If we don't know the Scriptures, how can we explain them to other people? How can you know the Scriptures if you don't spend time in the Scriptures? It's it's a daisy chain. You see what I'm saying? It's a daisy chain of things. You have to be in the Word. You have to read the Word to know the Word. You have to know the Word to be able to share the Word. And you have to speak the Word in order to be able to share the Word. So, in other words, you've got a lot to do. You've got a lot to do. But that's why you're here. That's why God has called you. So if they're in sin, confront them with the Word of God. If they're in error, correct them with the Word of God. If they're weak, encourage them with the Word of God. And do it patiently. Do it instructingly. And why do you preach the Word of God? Well, there were three reasons in the text that we covered last time. And the first is just the imminence of Christ's return. Uh, the text has the word mellow in it, and, uh, and essentially what it means is, he says, I charge you, in verse 1, before the, or in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, the one being about to judge. The word mellow in the Greek means about to. And, and the idea here is Jesus is about to come any time. He's about to judge mankind. He could be here today. And so there's an urgency uh, to this matter of proclaiming the Gospel. Why do you preach the Word of God? Because Christ could return at any minute. And we don't want to shrink back in shame because we've squandered what He's given us. We've been entrusted with a valuable treasure. We are these broken clay pots, if you will that have this immeasurable, vast treasure in them. And to whom much is given, much will be required. Because the time is brief and our Savior could come at any moment, we are to preach all the time, proclaim all the time, share the Gospel at every opportunity, The judgment. I mean, Bruce talked through the whole end times uh, plan here this morning, and if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and watch the video, because he kind of laid out what awaits unbelievers, and it's frightening. Every time I hear it, it gives me chills. You know, we're resurrected to eternal life, but but for the wicked dead they'll be resurrected and put into a body so they can suffer for the rest of eternity. It should send chills up your spine. I don't want to see anybody in that position, and that, beloved, motivates me to want to rescue them from that peril. The second reason is the intolerance of the congregations. Why do we preach the Gospel? Well, uh, because the congregations are going to pile up for themselves. They're going to surround themselves with teachers who tell them what they want to hear. So you have a responsibility to correct false teaching. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, listen, they're going to pile up for themselves people in accord with their own desires. Um, they're going to pile up for themselves weak need preachers who are going to tell them what they want to hear to make them feel good about themselves and completely miss what they need to hear in order to be saved. And we hear it all the time, the health and wealth Preachers, God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to live in a big home. He wants you to have nice cars. But that's not the Gospel. And that's not what we preach to people. We need to speak the truth to one another. In a world where the truth is being laid aside for madness. It's just another tactic from the evil one to to lead people astray. You know, wide is the road, right? Narrow is the path to eternal life. A lot of people go down the wide road. It's like the 5 freeway in California. But it, it goes to death. The narrow path leads to life. And there aren't a lot of people on that road. Third reason we talked about last week was because of the indifference of the crowds. Uh, The literal read here, it just said, and from or on the one hand, the truth hearing, they will turn away. And on the other hand, to myths, they will turn or go aside. So there's on the one hand, on the other hand, they're they're going to turn away from the truth and they're going to turn aside to myths. And the myths uh, in Timothy's day, in this area of the world, which is southern Turkey now, talking uh, Ephesus uh, and Crete, There were all kinds of pagan myths and practices that swirled around these areas. Um, Horrible pagan deities. And Timothy was to preach the word of truth to them. He was not just to know his Bible, but he was to preach the Bible. Not just talk about the Bible, but proclaim the Word of God. And I think this is a, really an exhortation for all of us. Uh, these things here, we should be people of the book first and foremost. We should be people of the book. We should know the book. But beyond that, we should understand that what we hold in our hands is God's offer of reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. So we must commit ourselves to preaching the Word of God. That was what we talked about last time. This time we're talking about the second fundamental duty, which is we need to preach the Word of God, but we need to also practice the will of God. And you see that in verse 5. And this is what we'll be talking mostly about today. There are four ways in which Paul fleshes out God's will for Timothy. And I... I think they're instructive for us this morning as well. And the first is to be sober in all things. This is uh, the word nephe in the Greek. And uh, uh, it typically has the idea of not hanging around wine too long. Not being drunk. But being sober. Uh, sobriety. And he's using it metaphorically here. Uh, meaning... Uh, be self-controlled, be clear-headed, free from every form of mental or spiritual excess, is the idea here. Be sober uh, about all things. That's an exact number, as Thomas would say. Right? Not just sober uh, about the things of God, but sober in all things. And notice there. There's a. What does it start with? We want to do some observation here. What's the first word? But, right? (laughs) But what is but? Come on, you grammar experts. It's a contrast, right? It's a contrast. What's it contrasting? Just by way of observation, by the way, we're going to be doing uh, how to study your Bible coming up very soon. I'm going to put in a little spot for that. (laughs) So so when you read a text, you want to when you hit a word like, but. You want to say, well, what's the contrast? There's got to be a contrast somewhere, right? What's he contrasting? Well, look at uh, Second Timothy three verses two to four. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then in verse 13, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, Timothy, what are you supposed to do? Be sober minded in all things. And unlike these men who practice evil, You need to be different. You need to stand out in a world where these types of things are common practice. In light of the charge in verse 1, too, it's not surprising that Paul would call Timothy to this exhortation. I mean, look at verse 1 in chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is about to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom, Uh, What's coming? Everything Bruce talked about this morning, what's coming? All of that history, all of that eschatology, all of those last things that are still coming um, should motivate us, should motivate Timothy. Hey, Timothy, all this is coming. Jesus is about to judge the living and the dead. He's standing right at the door, ready to come and judge. You better stick with it. You better get to it. You better preach the Word. And you better be sober about everything because you're in a war, Timothy. You're in a war. And it's a war for the souls of men and women. And you need to be continually sober-minded. There is a sobriety about knowing what we know, right? We know how the story is going to end. Jesus, our Lord, is going to judge the living and the dead. That's everybody. Everybody will give an account to Him. Except for those who are in Christ by faith. We will not be judged per se, because our sin was judged on the cross. So our sin is not going to come into play. The presence of sin for us will be gone. But Acts 17.31 says God has appointed a day and He's He's fixed the day and He's appointed the judge uh, to judge the entire world. It's coming. It's coming like a freight train and we're not going to stop it. And uh, we ought to get everybody on board that we can get on board. Uh, otherwise, those horrible things we heard about this morning will befall them. As I said, unbelievers are irreconciled. To, they're not reconciled to God. I guess irreconciled to God. Is that right? Anyway, they're not reconciled to God. They're enemies of God, right? Unbelievers. And you hold in your hands... The offer of reconciliation. You are God's ambassador. Isn't that what Paul says over in Second Corinthians five twenty-one? You are God's ambassador, and you're and you're pleading, pleading with people to be reconciled to God, for He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. That what? that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. God is, is declaring now that we are to be reconciled to Him through Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.7 The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 1 Peter 5.8 Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So how are you supposed to be? sober. It's sobering. Wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> right? I mean, is a reality check. I mean, as pastors, ultimately, our job in ministry is to prepare people to die. I mean, that's the bottom line. Our job is to prepare people for eternity. Which, by the way, when Christ returns, I'm out of a job. Everything else we do is secondary. And that is sobering. And, and here's the thing. Your job is really no different. Pastors are just servants of the body. God has given them specific gifting to be able to do what they do, but they're no different than you. They're still supposed to live soberly. They're still supposed to share the Gospel. They're still supposed to do everything you're supposed to do. It should not be left up to the professionals. I guess that's what I'm saying. As I said, to whom much is given, much will be required. And this goes for all of us. You see, we like to hide death in our culture. We don't like we don't like to think about death. But Solomon in all of his wisdom said it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of celebration because it's the end of every one of us and the wise take it to heart. Think about it. I went to a house last night. I was there for three hours. A woman was on her deathbed. I prayed with the family. I answered their spiritual questions. I I just comforted them. And she died in the middle of the night. That was it. I mean, she went from talking to everybody one day to crash and burn. It could happen any time, I'm telling you. The Scriptures tell us it's appointed for man to what? Die once. And then? Comes the judgment. Hebrews nine twenty seven. It is a sobering thing to know how the story ends and that we have this responsibility. We have this privilege. It's a privilege. Just to say, sobriety is the all-encompassing attitude, grammatically speaking in this sentence, uh, in this verse, that should govern the way Timothy was to handle the next three commands in the verse. So sober-minded in all things, and then he's going to list some of the things, some of the ways in which he should be sober. In, In other words, sobriety in all things, it should pervade everything we do. That's the bottom line. Have you ever driven somewhere and you get to the end of your destination and it says your phone says you have arrived and and you don't remember how you got there? Does that ever happen to you or is it just me? (laughs) Happens to me all the time. I get to my destination. I go, I don't remember that drive at all. Because I wasn't being sober minded about it. I was. I was not thinking about it. I was just on autopilot. And unfortunately, that's how we live our lives. Right? We don't live in a sober-minded way. You know what the famous last words of a redneck are, don't you? Here, hold my beer. (laughs) Leads to a lot of accidents because they're not being sober-minded. Turn to James five, seven and nine, real quick. I just just I feel like I need to put an exclamation mark on this. James five, seven and nine. He says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now what does that mean? That means you open the door and you go to the other side and and there he is. (laughs) Right? He's... He's right there, ready to appear. The judge is ready to come back. And when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead, right? So, we need to be sober in all things. Our eschatology should motivate our behavior and it should inform our priorities. We may need to reorient our lives a little bit. But that's how we live God's will. Secondly, we need to endure hardship. And this is actually an active verb, not a passive one. And what that means is we're not just standing around waiting for hardship to come our way. It's that when we're pursuing things and we run into hard times, we're supposed to endure through it. That's the idea. Uh, meeting hardships head on courageously, bearing up under affliction and this encompasses the whole gamut of of hardship, suffering, affliction, ill treatment, evil Timothy was going to face persecution Paul knew it I mean anybody who named the name of Christ was going to have problems hardship and ill treatment were facing him just as the Apostle Paul faced it down. Yet, yet he was to, to take these things head on without letting them dull his sense of sobriety. He was to, to be courageous and uncompromising. Second Timothy 4.8 Paul says to Timothy, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Timothy, I'm, I'm about to get my head chopped off here. I have served the Lord faithfully for 33 years. and And I have not this end to look forward to, but I have glory to look forward to and the crown of righteousness. He's looking beyond his own death and saying, hey, I'm keeping my eyes on the prize and, and you need to do the same thing, Timothy. Hard times are coming. Hard times are coming because guess what, Timothy? You're the pastor in a city called Ephesus, which is home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Artemis, also known as the Temple of Diana. And uh, Artemis was said to be an Olympian goddess, the daughter of Zeus and Leto. She was the the goddess of the moon, chastity, wild animals, vegetation, childbirth, and the goddess of the hunt. She was also known as Diana. Diana. So this was the Temple of Diana. She was the the favorite goddess of the people in the area. And not only in the area, but well beyond throughout the world, according to Acts 19.27. The story goes that a meteor fell from the sky, a meteorite, and it had these lumps on it. And they likened it to this goddess Diana. This is 700 years before Christ. And the temple was destroyed and rebuilt three times in the area. And in its final form, it it was said to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And to the degree that when people saw it, the other six wonders of the ancient world paled in comparison. That's how impressive this was. How'd you like to do a church plant in that area? Just up the street, right? This is what Timothy was facing. They would make molds of this multi-breasted goddess um, out of silver, and it it supported the local economy. Temple prostitution. People would come from miles around to, to celebrate the festivals. Uh, to this goddess. Acts 19:35 seems to corroborate the idea that that Artemis was this meteorite that fell from the sky. So so how deeply do you think the culture was involved in paganism? I mean, this is 700 years before Christ this started. This goddess. How tough do you think it would be for Timothy to face this during his pastorate? To make converts of these people. To make disciples of these people. I mean, it's up to God, but but his job was to proclaim the truth about who God was. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because, because Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus, he's reported to have been martyred in Ephesus. When you look at church history, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, there's a, a, here's a quote. It says, As the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagogion, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful a manner that he expired of the bruises two days after. Another account says basically the same thing. He he confronted them. It says that this uh, this pagan festival in honor of Dionysius called Categone, uh They would dress in costumes, masks, and partake in sexual immorality and murder. And Timothy said to them, Men of Ephesus, do not be mad for idols, but acknowledge the one who truly is God. And instead of listening to Timothy, they attacked him and beat him. And while he was barely alive, apparently other Christians took him somewhere. Um... From the mob, and he died, and they buried him in a place called Pion or Pion. I don't know how you say that in Ephesus. So Timothy, do you think he took Paul's charge seriously? Timothy preached the word. Uh, he preached the word, <laughs> and look what it got him—not death, but. Crown of righteousness. You know, we're a comfort loving generation. That's our problem. <laughs> and I proclaim to be the biggest comfort lover of them all. The more comfort we get, the more we crave it. And so when difficulties come into our lives, we get so hung up on what we think we deserve that we forget completely lose sight of what we've been called to. And we lose any and every sense of sobriety. And see, the thing is to prepare beforehand, not in the face of the conflict, but well beforehand as to how we're going to respond in the midst of that. We need to be proactive, not reactive. I mean, there is a place for that, but... That we need to be sober-minded. We need to gird up our loins. We need, to, we need to know that hard times are coming and be ready for them. And I hate to tell you this, but hard times are here for the church. Alistair Begg, a preacher that I really like, he says, despite the the obvious emphasis of Scripture in regard to suffering we are bombarded by suggestions that this successful Christian living takes place in the realm of constant victory, health, wholeness, and financial prosperity. In response to this, we're not to pretend that suffering doesn't exist or that it might be instantly cured. Such notions are the product of empty heads and closed Bibles. Is your Bible open? Are you sober-minded? If you want to be a success in God's eyes, then be sober-minded. Endure hardship. And third, do the work of an evangelist. This is interesting. The word work is moved forward in the sentence for, uh, for emphasis. It literally says, work, do of an evangelist. An evangelist is one who preaches the good news. And it really ties into the first duty of preaching, I think. But here the emphasis is on working at it. Working at it. And it's a high calling. Consider in the New Testament, there's only one person that's ever referred to as an evangelist, as the evangelist. Philip, right? Philip, the evangelist. Here Timothy is being told, do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. It doesn't mean he's gifted at it. He's got to work at it. And the work of evangelism doesn't come easy unless I think you're gifted at it. I'm not gifted at evangelism. I know I'm not. I've tried it. It didn't work. <laughs> no, no. I, I live it as a, as a way of life uh, because of my career. But I, I got to tell you, I get a lump in my throat just like the rest of you. When I have to talk to somebody about Christ, I get a lump in my throat. I have to work at it. I have to think about it. I, I have to think what I'm going to say. I have to strategize. Otherwise, I'm going to look like an idiot. Evangelism is hard work, and it's intimidating, and and therefore we have to be intentional about it. We have to work at it. And the, the command here is very emphatic. Work you do of an evangelist. Don't allow discouragement in evangelism to keep you from doing what you know you should be doing. Don't let fear keep you from doing what you should be doing. This, we're talking about living the will of God here. And the will of God for you and for Timothy is to do the work of an evangelist. I mean, what does Matthew 28 tell us? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples of all nations. How do you think that's going to happen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by how blessed are those who bring the good news of the gospel, right? How blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel. Uh, The point, I guess, is that the idea here is not random encounters, but planned and executed moments of evangelism. It's a purposeful approach. Now, we don't want to look at people as projects. They're not projects. They're people. They're souls. And we want their souls to be saved. We want them to know we genuinely care about them. Curtis Thomas, in his book, says we are to evangelize not because it is easy, Not because we may be successful, but because Christ has called us. He is our Lord. We have no other choice but to obey Him. That's pretty plain. (laughs) But we get so busy in our daily routines that we lose the sense of urgency and sobriety that comes with this command. You know, it's just one day after another. The alarm goes off and we just go through our routines. And I got to get to work, and I got to do my job, and then I got to go home and fix dinner, and then I got to do the dishes, and then I go to bed, and then I start all over again. And if we don't make plans, it's never going to happen. And dare I say it, that nine to five job you go to is just a way to make money. And what I mean by that is that's the Lord's provision for your family through that employment. But your real job in the real world of Christ, which is the real reality that we're living in, is to what? Do the work of an evangelist, live sober minded, stop running the rat race and think about what's happening around you. People are dying. And they're going to go to hell unless somebody shares the gospel with them. So you have to reorient your priorities. You have to think differently about life. And I used the word converts earlier, but I'm really talking about disciples. So making converts is not the charge. It's making disciples. It doesn't say go into all the world and make converts, does it? It says make disciples, which means you're in it for the long haul. It means you have to get involved. You have to bring them along. You can't just get a decision for Christ and abandon them and say, be warm, be filled. Right? You have to disciple them in the faith. You have to apply yourself to sharing the gospel with those around you. You have to work hard at it. Think of ways you might converse with people about Jesus. Strategize. And I don't mean changing the message, I don't mean softening the message. I just mean thinking of opportunities, creating opportunities so that you might be able to share the gospel. Thinking about conversations ahead of time that you're going to have with people. Like, what would you do this weekend? Oh, I don't know, I just hung out with a family, you know, we went to church, yada yada. How about, how about if you rephrase something like that? How about if you say, well, me and my family, we follow Jesus Christ. And so we spend our time every Sunday at church with other believers because we're preparing our hearts and minds for eternity. Does that sound weird or what? Or well, we're going to go to church and celebrate the birth of Christ because... Christ is the Redeemer and the Savior of the world and He died for our sins, you know, it can be more than just oh, we're going to go to church. Okay? Or maybe you don't even say that much. I'm just saying think and strategize about how you respond to people or are going to respond to people and weave the Gospel into those conversations. It takes thought It takes work. But it's what you've been called to. Warren Wiersbe, he's a famous Bible commentator, he says this, you are a Christian because somebody cared. Now it's your turn. When I read that, I went, oh, that hurt. But it's true, isn't it? Somebody cared enough about you to share the Gospel with you, and you came to saving faith, now it's your turn to care about somebody else. So, be sober-minded. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And finally, fulfill your ministry. The word uh, fulfill here literally means to fill full. And... uh The word ministry is where we get the word deacon from. It means basically service. It means service. And Paul used the same word for ministry to describe what Christ had called him to. We see that over in uh, 1 Timothy 3.12. Actually, I think that's the wrong verse. Yeah, I don't know what I'm looking for. There is somewhere, (laughs) I just don't know the address, uh, where Paul uses the same word for himself. For the ministry he had been called to. Ministry is the word service. It's the word deacon. As some see this as just reinforcing the idea that that Timothy is just to preach? uh, And as he preaches and as he evangelizes, he'd be fulfilling his ministry? I don't think so. I think it's a little more involved than that. I think that Paul is telling Timothy that his first and and primary duty is to preach the gospel. But he's not to neglect the service of God's people in general either. He has a greater ministry as uh, the pastor at Ephesus, to to fulfill the ministry there of shepherding God's people. And he's supposed to give equal weight to that duty as well. I I think in many ways, as I read this, fulfill your ministry. Have you ever been handed a job description and you go through and it tells you the, the job duties, the character qualifications, the education required, and then it gets to the end and it says what? Other duties as directed, right? <laughs> I think this is that catch-all. Fulfill your ministry is the Apostle's equivalent to other duties as directed. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Uh, do what God has called you to. It starts with preach the Word. It ends with fulfill your ministry. Everything in between is encompassed in that. I think Paul is basically telling Timothy, this is what God has called you to by His grace and in His mercy. This is God's will for your life and you and you must practice these things, Timothy, in order to abide in God's will. Preach the Word and practice the will of God. And... And as you do that, there's a great reward waiting for you in glory. And you can then consider yourself a success in God's eyes. I'm about out of time, so I'll just kind of finish up with this. I I think these commands are broad enough to apply to our walk of faith as well. I told you when I was praying about going into ministry vocationally, these verses left, left off the page for me. I just saw them as, as my call to ministry. It was, this was clear to me. And, and I just ask you this morning, have you figured out what your ministry is yet? It, it's kind of hard to fulfill your ministry if you haven't figured out what it is yet. Don't you think? He who aims at nothing will hit it every time. I think these are good questions to ask yourself this morning. What is my ministry? What has God called me to? What am I doing with what Christ has given me? Am I being a good steward? Well, these are four ways in which we practice the will of God. To be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'm mindful, uh, 80 years ago, Pearl Harbor was attacked, and I remember a quote as saying that uh, when America entered the war at that point, a sleeping giant had been awakened. What's it going to take for you to get involved in the war? You know, by the time the U.S. entered the war, millions of lives had been lost. Europe had nearly been conquered by the Nazis. Japan was encroaching all over the east. They tried to take us out by, by taking out the largest part of our naval fleet, all in one spot at one time. And all it did was aggravate the U.S. to the point where they got involved in World War II. And, and that changed the tide of the war. But why did they wait so long? Why did, they, why did it take so much to get them involved? What's it going to take for us to get involved? How many more lives and souls have to be lost before we awaken from our slumber. You see that thing resting in your lap? That's a weapon. You're in the Lord's army now. Pick up your weapon and fight. Get to it, soldier. The clock is ticking. The judge is right at the door. And you have a lot of work to do. Preach the Word of God. Practice the will of God. May God be glorified through you. I pray. Let's pray together.